In the name of one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. My energy is low today. I just spent a week on spiritual retreat, which invigorated me. And then last night, I stayed up three hours too late to see Sweeney Todd. (laughs) I'll tell the truth, it has colored my sermon today just a little bit. So, We, We Christians and our cross. To be honest, our story is a loaded story, isn't it? Our story is loaded with imperialism and militant pride. Our story is loaded with sacred and righteous misunderstandings. Our story has inspired depths of theology, spirituality, and mysticism that, truth be told, I am not learned enough to fathom. And despite all the books that have been written about this central symbol of our faith, from the countless theology of the cross attempts to popular titles like The Crucified God by Jürgen Moltmann to the hymns that we sing today, one question is still stubbornly in our faces. Can we get it right, the cross If someone asked you, what does the cross mean to you? What would you say? Could you tell them what this meant? Or if you're a Catholic, what this meant? Or if you're high Anglo-Catholic, what this meant and this meant? Because we do it a lot, right? We do this motion. When we bless, we use the cross. Look around us everywhere. We have this. And if we pose the question to all the pews of Christendom this morning... How many answers would we get? Lift high the cross, we sing, that ancient beloved hymn that speaks to us from, well, not that long ago, really. It's not as old as you might think, at least not by the historical timelines of the church. I mean, actually, it was written just yesterday in 1887 by George Kitchen, from the Church of England, the Anglican Church, our church. And in 1916, it was revised by another Englishman, Michael Newbolt. And quite obviously, the hymn was designed to be a processional hymn. We saw it today. We sung it in procession. We brought in the cross. The choirs followed. Then all of the Eucharistic ministers and the clergy, here we were walking into the sanctuary of God, lifting high the cross as our central symbol of our faith. It's got a great marching energy, and I'll tell you, honestly, I love it. It's one of my most favorite hymns in the hymnal. At least I think I love it. I mean, I love love the tune. I love the music. It's called the Crucifer. Doesn't it make sense to lift high the cross? But The text, I find, is a little harder to fully accept. The original text, Come, Christians, follow where our captain trod, our king, victorious Christ, the Son of God. And we hear today, as we sang, led on their way by this triumphant sign, the hosts of God in conquering ranks 
combine. I listen to those words, and I'll tell you, I still love it. I love the hymn. I sing it loudly. I fought hard for it when I was in seminary for it to be our processional hymn even as a lot of my colleagues said, it's too violent, it's too militant. And it always makes me wonder what the original cross bearer might think about this victorious militant language that it uses. You know, the one who carried the cross and with it all the weight of human sin. The one who suffered under the violent hands of soldiers and was tortured and crucified. What does he think of the 19th century hymn from the height of the British Empire? Would he like it? Would he endorse it? Or would he throw it out of God's temple like he did to the money changers? I love this hymn. I must confess but I'm a little bit afraid of Jesus' answer. I think at the very best, we really need to better understand what kind of Christian soldiers Jesus wants us to be. Because the military image in this hymn, it actually reminds a lot of people, a lot of commentators, of a very controversial story from the 4th century one that changed the course of history. It's the late stages of the Roman Empire and Constantine, who later becomes known as Emperor Constantine. So at least you know the good end of the story here. He's in a fight for his life against his main rival, and his rival has an army twice the size. And as the story goes, Constantine, who was not a Christian at the time, he famously has this dream during the night. And he is advised to mark the shield of his army with the two initials of Christ, what we know to be the Cairo. And then he has another dream, and he sees in this dream, and this is from a writing of the 4th century, I think the language is important, he saw with his own eyes a trophy of the cross, a trophy of the cross, arising from the light of the sun and carrying the message, with this sign, you shall win. Well, it's needless to say that Constantine, the emperor, the great, he wins the battle, and he introduces the Christian faith as the state religion. In fact, he actively brings the church together by calling the first church-wide convention of Nicaea, Okay. And this dream about the cross as a symbol of victory before a real army changes history. And I think the story is just beautiful. It is beautiful in that he is converted to Christianity. And that's how he comes to clearly love the church. But I wonder if he ever sincerely understands the meaning of the cross. But then, who does? This story is deeply troubling to me because it mixes the notions of empire and political power with the gospel. 
And don't we know that Jesus says explicitly, my kingdom is not from this world. I can almost hear him saying, I didn't die for soldiers to march under the sign of the cross. I didn't come so that my disciples would kill in the name of the cross. Which, of course, we know is exactly what happens with the Crusades. Political power and Christian faith have never mixed well. And where they try to mix today, it's usually not good either. We Christians and our cross, ours is a loaded story indeed. It's loaded with misunderstandings and misconceptions, and yet it's such an important symbol of our faith that we could never, ever abandon it. Look around you. It's everywhere. It's behind me. It's the form of the church. We'll get it with the consecration. We'll get it with the absolution and the blessing. It's everywhere. Our Savior died on it. Our Savior bled on it for our sins. Our sins, and the scripture says, for our redemption as well, so that we might live. And it is at this deepest level an expression of God's undeterred love for humanity. God's willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice for us. That kind of cross we should always lift up. That kind of message we should always carry into the church and bow our heads before it. So long as we know the cross entitles us to no privilege or status in this earth. The only thing the cross provides us is a message that we're to serve God. And perhaps the people who know best the message of the cross are those who are persecuted themselves, like Jesus was. They will not think of the suffering of Jesus as something that can be explained easily and snugly because they know it might happen to them. Troy and I went to people in seminary who were from Africa and South America, and they wore their collars every day knowing that wearing their collars might cost them their life. We also had colleagues who would never deign to wear their collar on an airplane lest someone ask them to talk about God. One of my favorite quotes about the cross comes from Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was assassinated in his church in El Salvador in 1980. And he writes this, We've never preached violence except the violence of love, which left Christ nailed to a cross. The violence that we must each do to ourselves to overcome our selfishness and such cruel inequalities among us. The violence we preach is not the violence of the sword, the violence of hatred. It's the violence of love, of brotherhood, the violence that wills to beat weapons into sickles for work. That violence of love that Romero talked about might be the way to better understand my favorite hymn, Lift High the Cross. Jesus suffered violence on that cross, and yet he asked people to love 
even if it costs them everything. And how can we fathom this kind of love in a world that can't possibly understand what it truly means to believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything? To give up selfishness and to fight for those who have no voice. If we understand the church in that sense, our Lord invites us to rally behind it as a church. In fact, you might recall the church teaching about the church militant. It never had anything to do with weapons, nothing to do with swords, but with hearts committed to the kingdom of God. I believe in the church militant, and I believe we need an army. We need an army of people who are committed to the kingdom of God here on earth, to feeding the hungry, to clothing the naked, to freeing the oppressed. I believe in that because we need that to infiltrate this violent, hate-filled, crime-ridden world. So lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaim till all the world adore his sacred name.